Hi, welcome to the analysis.news. I'm Paul Jay. In a few seconds, I'll be back with Noam Chomsky and Daniel Ellsberg. Please don't forget, there's a donate button, subscribe button, uh, the email list, all the buttons. Noam Chomsky and Daniel Ellsberg join me again today to discuss President Biden's again claiming the U.S. will defend Taiwan with U.S. troops if China uses military force to reunify the country. Here's what Biden said on 60 Minutes. What should Chinese President Xi know about your commitment to Taiwan? We agree with what we signed on to a long time ago, and that there's a one-China policy, and Taiwan makes their own judgments about their independence. We are not moving, we're not encouraging them being independent. We're not, let, that's their decision. But would U.S. forces defend the island? Yes, if in fact there was an unprecedented attack. To be clear, sir, U.S. forces, U.S. men and women, would defend Taiwan in the event of a Chinese invasion? Yes. Analysts in the U.S. and elsewhere, including Chinese, are saying this sounds like the end of strategic ambiguity over Taiwan. And it also seems that, once again, the White House has tried to walk it back a little bit, claiming the one-China policy is still in effect. But how there's a one-China policy and a commitment to use American soldiers to defend Taiwan uh, seems to at least escape me. Now joining me again is Noam Chomsky and Daniel Ellsberg. Thanks very much for joining me. Uh, so, Noam, why don't you start with this? What is going on with Biden doing this? And is he, are they really serious about dropping strategic ambiguity? And maybe you can just explain a little bit what that is for people that don't know. Was held for about 50 years, keeping peace in a very volatile area. We should recognize that under international law, Taiwan is part of China. It's not ambiguous. Uh, it's like uh, Hawaii being part of the United States. That's uh, so, uh, and the, the, the United States has accepted about 50 years ago, the one China policy says Taiwan is part of China, but we'll keep ambiguous about uh, what's going to happen in the uh, interaction between Taiwan and China and the United States. So both sides won't do anything to disrupt it. We just won't talk about it. We won't be provocative. We won't try to disrupt it. And let's just keep the peace in a very volatile area. It's worked for 50 years. That's pretty good. Now the United States is trying to provoke it, undermine it. Biden's speech is just one example. Uh, in some ways, I think even more important is uh, what just happened in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, where they just came out with a bill proposed legislation, which pretty much says that uh, Taiwan should be kind of like a NATO partner. Stop the ban, stop, put, put down all the bars, uh, regular diplomatic relations, uh, uh, interoperability of weapons. Uh, in fact, it reads very much like, it's almost a copy of the uh, 
inflammatory rhetoric that led up to the uh, inv Russian invasion last fall uh, with uh, you know, increasing, uh, establishing uh, an, an enhanced program was the word that was used for Ukraine to enter into NATO, increasing uh, weapon supply, uh, uh, military operations. Uh, I mean, it's not a justification for the invasion, but they were plainly being very provocative. In fact, the United States State Department even said uh, we're not going to take Russian security interests into account. Well, now they seem to be doing the same thing with with China. Uh, you should read that policy, the Taiwan Policy Act. It's it's uh, it's basically telling China that we're we we want to break not only break down strategic ambiguity, but we want to be highly provocative about it. Now Biden, to his credit, seems to oppose that legislation. I don't haven't seen anything definite, but he's indicated he's not approving it. But it passed overwhelmingly, bipartisan support. It's going to go to Congress and see what happens. Uh, but it's kind of after the. I mean, the Pelosi visit was crazy enough, but this goes beyond. It's almost as if you're watching this from outside. It almost looks as if Congress is dying to have two wars on its hand. Uh, uh, Could I, I ask a question? Yeah, I, go ahead. I, I think I read, and I'm not, I'll have to look it up, that uh, Congress had, it had been proposed, I don't know if it's been passed, uh, for, for aid to Taiwan. Uh, billions of dollars that would be used to buy weapons in the U.S. and elsewhere. Is that part of that same bill you're talking about, Noam, or is it something separate, or am I mistaken? No, this is separate. This is a new, it's not legislation yet. It came out of the uh -huh. Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Anyway, uh, one of the former Republicans, one Republican, and a couple of Democrats. So it yeah, Go ahead. Go ahead, Dan. Okay. One of the very few reasons I can think of for this very provocative behavior uh, undermining the, our supposed commitment to a one-China policy, which Biden and everybody else have always announced and are still announcing. But there, in other words, that Taiwan is a province of China, which the Chinese certainly regarded as being, not just Xi and all of his previous leaders. In fact, their nationalist feelings have focused for a long time, I understand, on the eventually being strong enough and taken seriously enough to regain control of Taiwan. In other words, that's a red line uh, that we are rushing right toward to cross, not only by Biden and not only by these congressional bills, but uh, the visits uh, by Congress leaders treating uh, Taiwan as a sovereign state, in effect, which is totally contradictory to the uh, one China policy. Now, why would China particularly be concerned about that, aside from the fact that it's a nationalistic uh, mantra that Taiwan uh, can, is not an independent state of China, something that Taiwan agreed with uh, almost unanimously until this century, till the last 20 years. Now, the best reason I can think of 
one of the few <laughs> effective reasons is to sell more arms to Taiwan and we have yet done. The 1979 agreement uh, with China, recognizing mainland China as the sole uh, ruler of all China, including Taiwan, uh, did by congressional, uh, simultaneous congressional action, uh, allow for us to sell defensive weapons to Taiwan under a certain ceiling. And we pretty much observed that. I think we can be sure that Raytheon and Lockheed and uh, Grumman, uh, Grumman, the others, would like to break through that, just as they are doing marvelously in Europe now uh, and Ukraine directly. They would like to be able to sell uh, weapons the same way they do uh, to uh, other NATO countries. But beyond that, also, the uh, before 1979, Taiwan was in effect a U.S. military protectorate. Uh, since 1949, when the communists took power in the mainland, the Seventh Fleet was used to prevent any continuation of the Civil War, which had, up to that point had uh, led to the victory of the Chinese communist leadership. Uh, the Seventh Fleet was there to protect them with threat of nuclear weapons, as I revealed uh, last year with some top secret documents that are still being kept top secret on the fact that we were threatening and prepared to use nuclear weapons to defend Taiwan and possibly even the offshore islands, which are within sight uh, a few miles off the uh, Chinese mainland. So that ended in 79. Up till that time, we had bases on Taiwan, which you can be sure the Navy and Air Force were very happy to have, and I'm sure would be glad to get back. We had, I'm virtually sure, I believe, nuclear weapons there. I visited there in 1960 for the Defense Department, and I, uh, there were nuclear weapons there at that time. They would like to get those back. Well, it's very obvious China has, in this case, not just nationalistic, but significant security reasons for not wanting that to happen. And strictly speaking, they don't even have to be in NATO uh, to do that, or, or, nor would Ukraine have had to be in NATO for U.S. bases to be there. There could be uh, or other European powers. It could be bilateral arrangements uh, then and now, which uh, would allow for that. And obviously, uh, Russia was very reasonably concerned uh, not to let that happen. And actually, I believe uh, there were word, there was word that Biden was definitely prepared to negotiate on that, on that point, on basing and weapons. But in any case, in Taiwan. The Chinese, I think it's a it's a recipe. It's a as Noam has said, it's hard to understand that as other than a desire to bring about a war between China and the U.S. Given the Chinese repeated vociferous uh, position for the last seventy years that they will not reallow, they will not allow again, uh, foreign bases, U.S. bases, uh, threatening them from uh, Taiwan. And, or, and preventing them from uh, peaceful reunification in Taiwan. Whether they actually want, which is hard to believe, an actual war, they are certainly risking it. But for whatever reasons, they are gambling here on such a war. And one thing that Biden is not, and I'm afraid not going to uh, remove in terms of ambiguity, is whether he will use nuclear weapons if necessary to defend Taiwan. Is he going to say, to remove that ambiguity and to say, no first use, we will not 
initiate the stages of blowing up the world to defend Taiwan or anywhere else, or the Ukraine. By the way, he could easily afford to say that in Ukraine, no first use by the US, and to try to shame Russia uh, from the threats that Putin is actually making now in imitation of the threats we made for so many years. But what's changed in Europe is that the Warsaw Pact countries, aside from Russia, moved over to NATO. And so the conventional uh, conventional balance is totally changed there. And there's no pretense of a need for us to threaten nuclear war in Ukraine. Putin is doing it for the other reason and with no more justification than the US had for doing it for the previous half century. To come back to Taiwan, there the situation is different. The Chinese for 20 years, more than 20 years, since Clinton sent two carriers into the Taiwan Straits to intimidate them in, I think it was 1996, uh, they had been building up that area. So we, well, the U.S. can't make threats like that and can't act with impunity in that area uh, anymore. And in this case, I don't think Biden will be willing to give up the kind of threat that Putin is making if he were on a losing side in Ukraine. He won't give it up, and he should. It's outrageous for either party here, either superpower, to be using the threat of initiating nuclear war uh, for any reason whatever. And uh, it should not be. Uh, uh, whatever Taiwan's reasonable, realistic concerns, uh, it should not be the case in this century we are defending and protecting any other place by the threat to blow the world up. Uh, Noam, uh, the, the American corporate elite seem very split at the level of their commercial interests. Uh, Apple's expanding its investments in China. The Black, BlackRock, the largest asset management company in the U.S., is expanding a, a whole new Chinese investment fund. And the schizophrenia is, 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 you can see, in one company in a very interesting way. Boeing, which, for which Taiwan is an, a significant market, maybe not in their top 10, but significant. But the largest purchaser of Boeing commercial aircraft in 2020 was China. So the, you know, one arm of Boeing wants to sell arms and inflame the situation. Another arm wants to continue commercial sales to China. I mean, it's really nutty, but at the level of the commercial interest, at the very least, it's divided. Certainly, the military-industrial complex knows what they want. But at the political level, you don't see that division. Both parties are as hawkish on China. I mean, is, is domestic politics driving this, that, oh, they don't want to be weak on China with elections coming? I'd like to hear from both of you answers to that question, why that is the case, why the Democrats are vying with the Republicans in support of abandoning the one China policy and moving toward a war. I can't understand it. And from what you just said, Paul, it occurs to me, is it not conceivable or is it that Apple and even the Boeing commercial division could come out in, in both funds and political races and uh, come out against the move toward war of the military industrial part of the company or against Lockheed or against the others? Why don't the ones who are trading with China come out openly and say, this is crazy as it is? No. Well, if you could get into a corporate boardroom Apple, uh, Tesla, any of them, 
I'm sure they'd be very eager to maintain their commercial relations with China. For the corporate sector, it's just been a bonanza. They get cheap controlled labor, uh, uh, much less lower skilled, you know, healthy, uh, and they make enormous profits. It's not just the military, you know, uh, the, the whole corporate sector. For them, the opening of China has been a huge bonanza. And so why are they not uh, confronting this approach and, and opposing it effectively? What's happening? That's what I would be interested in seeing, uh, what's going on in the corporate boardrooms. It's beyond that. In fact, uh, Taiwan is the major producer of chip, advanced chips. The only ones who compete are South Korea. Uh, I think the corporations are concerned about the threat to supply lines which was brought up by COVID. COVID, the pandemic, showed that the business model of the past generation has been very hazardous. It's a kind of a, you know, business model of sort of like, it's kind of like running an assembly line so that it just lasts to the, every, to the last second, nothing can go wrong. If anything goes wrong, it collapses. That's been the business model on supply chains. As soon as anything goes wrong, it all collapses. Very fragile system. Now the corporate world must be realizing this. This had nothing to do with Taiwan. It was just the pandemic that did it. And uh, so they must be trying to rationalize supply chains, which might mean trying to move things to uh, other less uh, dangerous areas. But, but isn't that threatened, threatened by a uh, congressional delegation? Yeah, let me let me add let me add to Dan's question. The the number probably the most important thing for American capital in terms of globalization was the leverage, cheap discipline Chinese labor gave them against American workers, and now. They're 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 losing that. The the weren't the more tense against with China, the more jeopardized those global supply chains get, and the more leverage American workers get. I mean, a sense a sense that's a little bit of an upside from all this, but again, this why the hell isn't that part of corporate America uh, screaming against this policy? I mean, they're not saying a word. First of all, they're continuing the investments. As you pointed out before, they're moving some investments to Vietnam, Malaysia, you know, a little more in Mexico, but uh, the, there's been no move, basic move to try to pull out of China. It's a little, uh, it's a little more difficult because of the, uh, it's not just Congress notice, there's a background to the uh, uh, raising the uh, threats to Taiwan today. Uh, the Biden administration sharply expanded the Trump programs of what they call encircling China with a ring of uh, sentinel states, uh, sentinel states they're called. So a ring of US satellites, South Korea, Japan, Australia, Australia, I should say, if you read the Australian presses, very nervous about this. They don't like what's happening for good reasons. 
but try to encircle China with this ring of sentinel states, heavily armed, uh, you know, advanced missiles pointed to China. And this is only part of it. Remember at home, the United States is working to undermine China's technological developments. It's not hidden. Uh, in the United States, it's become so crazy that if Congress finally agrees to pass a badly needed infrastructure bill, it has to be called the China Competition Bill. You can't spend money because <laughs> the bridges are falling down. You have to do it because we have to beat China. Uh, it's uh, it's kind of collective insanity. It's and incidentally with China, this is an old business. The yellow peril fear is very deep in American history. Uh, you go back a century, you find a progressive author like Jack London writing a novel about how we have to carry out bacteriological warfare to kill all the Chinese because before they come over here and, and you know destroy us. In the 1950s, those of us who are old enough to remember the huge yellow peril fear the Chinese are going to come. Uh, Lyndon Johnson uh, warned that, as he put it, without superior air power, we're going to be prey to any yellow dwarf with a knife. You know, that's uh, that's the move. Chinese. I mean, the first anti-racist anti-immigration bill was Chinese back in the 1882. You know, Oriental Exclusion Act aimed at Chinese. So it's, it's deep in the background. Comes out. Anytime there's a problem, oh, the Chinese are going to conquer us. Got to stop them, you know. There's a lot of talk about China's going to surpass us in gross domestic product. They're going to be the main economic power in the world. Most of that, I think, is nonsense. But uh, Ken Starrs, a young political economist, has been studying something else for some time. There's a good book coming out about him. He's asking... He's pointing out that in a globalized world, a significant measure of national economic power is the amount of wealth held by multinational corporations based in a particular country. That's an important measure. And if you look at that measure, spectacular, U.S. corporations, U.S.-based corporations own about half of total global wealth. They're first or second in just about every uh, area. China's way behind. Uh, in fact, if you take a look at uh, the profit that's made from selling iPhones, very little of it goes to China. Most of it goes, a lot goes to Taiwan, which is the Foxconn or other managers, but most of it goes to Apple for, for what ec economists call rent. Uh, design, you know, the royalties and so on. So China is undoubtedly growing, but the US, uh, U.S. economic power remains enormous. And this whole corporate wealth, as you say, wants to maintain the kind of China connection. They surely don't like the, uh, the, uh, uh, the raising of tensions that's coming mostly out of Congress, but also out of the White House. Uh, maybe one of the reasons why this section of corporate America isn't saying more 
is because the Chinese are making it clear that they're not irrational about all this. There's a very interesting thing in Global Times, this English sort of edition of uh, uh, People's Daily, uh, which is essentially an English platform for the Chinese Communist Party. And they praised the appointment of the new American Consul General to Hong Kong, saying that he actually knows something about China. And they see him as a, a message from Washington to try to calm things down, that they finally, you know, they appointed someone that actually can be a, a good bridge for communication. Um, and it was a, a kind of positive. It wasn't filled with uh, anti-American rhetoric. I mean, maybe what's happening is the Chinese are saying to corporate America, look, we have no imminent plans to invade or use military force on Taiwan. That rhetoric's coming more from Washington than from us. So you don't actually have to worry so much. Keep your investments going. Of course, they would be crazy to invade Taiwan. Their own project is working very well. Uh, With all this war talk, the Chinese are systematically building a huge investment development project, built and road initiative within the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, spreading all over Asia, Central Asia, extending into Africa, it's even extending into Latin America. It's going into the Middle East through what they call the Maritime Silk Road, the UAE, major Middle Eastern powers tied up in the China system, even Israel. I mean, China owns half the Haifa port. You know, they're just spreading, developing, quietly building this huge uh, economic empire based in China. They don't want any war to disrupt it. They're doing fine. I mean, I I haven't seen it confirmed, but it was just announced that they're building the world's biggest battery uh, manufacturing uh, enterprise in uh, Hungary, spreading into Europe. They want to enter the, and it's very tempting for Europe. Uh, If you take a look at polls, Europeans don't want this war to go on. In Germany, uh, three quarters of the population wants to move to negotiations right now, settle it. Uh, they they want to be part of this growing imperial system. China's a huge market for them. Uh, Japan at the other end uh, has not canceled. In fact, is increasing its investments in the Sakhalin Russian uh, oil development areas. They just don't want to be part of it. The same is true of India and Indonesia. Now, I should mention in India, there's a good deal of deception going on. Like a lot has been made of the claim that uh, India is rebuking Russia because of its aggression and the break between India and Russia. Take a look. It's based on six words in a meeting in Samarkand between Prime Minister Modi and uh, President Putin, in which Modi says, well, neither of us want war. Then he goes, that's the part that's quoted. And then he goes on to say, let's move on together to a peaceful settlement. Our relations with Russia have been very close, very warm. They're continuing. We want them to improve. They are improving. I mean, it's like an ode to Putin and Russia. It's interpreted here as a break between India and Russia. 
you got to be really careful to watch what's going on. Like any war, there's going to be plenty of propaganda, but the stops are totally out in this case. Uh, go ahead, Dan. Uh, yes, I'm concerned in this conversation a little bit for this reason. Uh, no, of course, all the points you've made went to the reality, as I understand it, that there would be essentially no threat to Taiwan, a military threat to Taiwan from China, from the Chinese regime, were it not, if, if the status quo of ambiguity, as you say, of the last 40 years were to continue. And there would be no threat as things goes on if it weren't for what Congress and both parties and Biden uh, are saying. And what Trump began actually with uh, recognizing uh, uh, one of his first calls was with Taiwan when he became president, treating it as an independent nation. Now, she has given, neither she nor the Chinese in general or his predecessors, gave any indication they were going since the Taiwan Straits crisis of 58 or at the latest 98, 96, um, one, one generation ago, that they were intended in the near future uh, to invade China, uh, Taiwan or ever would, unless it were thoroughly, um, became thoroughly infeasible to consider a peaceful reunification or if Taiwan independence were to be recognized by other states larger than uh, Dominican, St. Dominica, I think, and uh, Palau and a few other uh, islands, basically. But if the U.S. were to recognize China and act toward it as a sovereign nation, they've said all along, they haven't made the preparations for an invasion now, they haven't, but they will. In other words, to say that now, given what the U.S. is doing in the way of moving toward Taiwan, to be a sovereign nation that could call in the U.S. bases and in any amount, if they're a sovereign nation, they can ask for any amount of offensive weapons they want, uh, ICBMs or IRBMs if they wanted. Uh, that's the implication of being a sovereign nation. And uh, um, if it weren't that the U.S. is fanning those flames within Taiwan and, and, effect, and implying we're moving toward recognition of Taiwan, there wouldn't be any danger, as you say. But that is happening. So there is danger, and here's the paradox. Uh, ruling circles, corporate circles in the U.S., except for a, minor, a relatively minor amount of arms sales compared to the other sales, as Paul points out, of Boeing and Lockheed and the others. Except for that, uh, in corporate America, we can't see them as setting the policy, which is moving toward war. I repeat again, the war is not imminent unless we keep going the way it was, and then it will become imminent by every, every standard. So how can we stop that? And, and there is this paradox, this mystery that I have to call it. Why is this happening? Why are the commercial interests uh, going absolutely against the interests of world stability and the U.S. profit? In one of the other articles I read in Global Times, which is one of my new favorite things to read because I get to actually see what the Chinese are saying themselves, they accused the United States on the issue of Taiwan of trying to create a kind of encirclement of China on the issue of semiconductors, that they're trying to control the semiconductor uh, market. And it's, it, the, the, it's the semiconductor thing, I, I, if I understand it correctly, 
Uh, Taiwan is uh, not just one of the largest, but in terms of the thinnest wafer semiconductors that are really necessary for real high tech, including military, but all the big high commercial tech, Taiwan is really the dominant player in the world by the, the, like 70, 75%. But the, the thing that's interesting is that the machines that make those semiconductors, the machines that make the machines are made in the Netherlands. And the Netherlands is the only place on earth that makes the machines that makes the machines and they're back ordered for about five years. Because that's why all these other countries can't just, like why can't China just make its own high level semiconductor? They don't have the technology yet. In fact, even the United States doesn't have it, only the Netherlands. I actually had this explained to me by the guy that invented the use of silicon in chips. Um, so so the, the, the issue of the control of the semiconductor market is one of the things at the heart of this. Am I reading this right, Noam? Okay, no, I mean, can I? Well, can go, I ahead, go ahead, Dan. Yeah, go ahead. What got me concerned about Taiwan uh, specifically over a year ago was an article by that smart fool on the New York Times, Tom Friedman, who has pointed out that the uh, semiconductor market was so dependent on Taiwan. And that's why we had to end the strategic ambiguity. In effect, he didn't come right out and say that, but he implied that's why China wants Taiwan, and that's why we have to defend Taiwan. In effect, so that got me interested in saying we're blowing up the world over over these semiconductors, and we can't move them somewhere else. Well, the point I've been making right now is there would be no threat of military occupation of that if we weren't creating it. Uh, it, it seems almost entirely. I, I, if I can go on two things that Noam said earlier, and you also mentioned the, I just said the semiconductor part, but the chain of symbol bases that we're trying to have around a new, a new Asian NATO, in effect, uh, containing China, uh, had originally Taiwan as its anchoring point. And uh, China must believe, I, I think it would be very natural to believe, and pretty realistic, believe that the uh, Pentagon and the uh, uh, imperialists and the, and the both administrations in both parties would like to have Taiwan as part of that Sentinel group again, and to have basis on it, have our submarines uh, based there, have missiles and so forth, pinning that down. So uh, they have every reason to believe given what we're doing and saying that that's, where we, that's what we want to produce again. All this talk about an Asian NATO with Taiwan in it and with Japan lending itself to that for some reason and uh, offering to uh, take part in this uh, whatever and the concern about who controls the Solomon Islands, for example, and uh, whether it's China, which China getting in now in, in preference. So as I say, the reason I was laughing when you mentioned semiconductors is I remember Friedman uh, saying, this is why we have to be prepared to go to war. It, it didn't seem to me like a, a terribly plausible basis somehow in the assumption that I thought if it was really that dangerous, if they were, if the Chinese were threatening to take it over right away, am I wrong that you can't move that whole thing? Yeah, yeah, it's it's not. My understanding is it is not easy to move the whole thing, or they would have done it already. It's it's not so not so easy. Well, my what I understand, what I understand, there's about a they need there's about a five year window 
is what I've been told, to actually kind of repatriate. They're, they're spending billions of dollars now trying to do this in the U.S., in India, but it's not something you can do quickly. Am I, Noam, go ahead. It's been all along, and everybody gets their semiconductors. The only thing that's threatening Chinese can actually destruction of those. Would the semiconductors survive a war between the U.S. and China centering <laughs> on good, Taiwan? I really raise that a question. Good, that's a good the point. The effect yeah. on that of the global supply chains, I think, would be quite spectacular. So yeah. it, it is it is this paradoxical business. We are creating a threat in the sense that we are going against uh, Chinese attitude toward Taiwan, which is not distinguishable from Lincoln's attitude toward the Confederacy, which is, you can't secede. We will not uh, allow that. And we had a civil war over it. Uh, no, nobody accused global capitalism of being rational. Uh, go ahead, Noel. I was going to say that your point about the Netherlands is quite significant. Uh, there is a system integrated within the whole coordinated state capitalist framework. Netherlands is part of the German system. Germany has constructed in Europe a quite elaborate, complex production system, production distribution. It extends from Netherlands to Slovakia. All of this is being threatened, and the surely don't like it. I'm sure that's the reason why you're seeing 75% uh, of Germans want to get the war over. They don't want this system broken up and they want it connected with Asia. Asia is a huge market, not just the whole BR Belt and Road Initiative thing, but to the Japan, Indonesia, India, they don't want to be cut off from all of that. And the China-Taiwan connection is an example. Uh, these things don't get developed in a day. You can't just move them. They're integrated internationally and uh, well established. Uh, what we're actually driving China to do is develop its own high-tech uh, chip technology. <clears throat> you may have seen in the science journals, they recently produced a very thin, uh, super thin wafer. Maybe they can make it commercially viable but we're driving them to raise their technological level. We're doing the same thing by excluding Chinese students from US universities. This is some of the top students in the universities. Okay, so they'll go back to China and work. Meanwhile, we'll encircle China with uh, um, Sentinel states uh, uh, aimed at them, uh, try to uh, create uh, a turn Taiwan into semi-native state. It's just, I mean, if you try to give a rational, from a rational national interest uh, perspective, it has no logic. You can, it, you can understand why uh, hawks want to outdo each other. Of course, as somebody said before, the military industry loves it. You know, they can sell more arms and so on. But it's uh, you know it's part of a long-standing um, affair. I mean, 50 years ago, uh, Seymour Melman was pointing out in his work on the military Pentagon system that while in those days it was Japan, while Japan and Germany are developing 
advanced technology and superior means of production, the United States is putting its uh, its 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 research, development, and production into creating more ways of destroying things. Well, of course, that hit the United States in the 1980s when the United States was falling far behind in production capacity and the Reagan administration had to institute government programs to train uh, managers in Japanese and German style production. One of the forces driving this uh, anti-China fervor in the United States is Christian nationalism. Uh, a few years ago, Steve Bannon spoke to a meeting of multimillionaires uh, at the Vatican being uh, held under the auspices of Cardinal Burke, the far right-wing Opus Dei Cardinal who has been trying to overthrow Pope Francis. And in that meeting, Bannon said to these millionaires, he says, you're rich because God made you rich and you have a responsibility to God for your riches. And that responsibility is fighting in this coming war against radical Islam and China. And of course, now it's become more about China than it is about radical Islam. But one of the core beliefs of the Bannon-esque Christian nationalists is the, this mythic, apocalyptic even, war uh, against China. And that's helping, I think, create the kind of fervor in Congress because nobody wants to look weak on China. Certainly not the only factor at play, but given what's coming in the coming elections, where it's not out of the question that the Christian Nationalist Republican Party might control Congress, they more or less control the Supreme Court, and who knows if they don't have the presidency in 24. So in the next segment uh, with Noam and Dan, we're going to talk about the coming elections and rising fascism in the United States. So please, thank you, Noam and Dan, and thank you for joining us, and uh, join us for part two.